Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always. And today we're going to be starting what may be kind of an ongoing series here on Attention to Detail. We've actually done some of these in the past, but I'm going to be doing what I'm calling operatic spark notes. And we've done this a little bit with with some Wagner. Uh, we also looked at some some pieces of like symphonies and, and pieces of instrumental music uh, in this kind of spark note fashion. But I want to do this a little bit with opera as well. The goal is to kind of give an overview of a specific opera in, in kind of broad strokes, maybe feed the curiosity a little bit, uh, encourage you to go listen and see these operas in their their full form. And I thought, what better opera to start with than one, one of my favorite operas, if, if not my single favorite opera. And it's, it's really, it's not uh, an opera that is going to lay the foundation for other operas. It's really a, a groundbreaking piece of music, a real kind of marker of the beginning of musical modernism. And that is Richard Strauss's Salome. Phenomenal piece very uh, controversial, risque, a lot of interesting, uh, often somewhat disturbing themes in the opera. Um, so it's not for the, the faint of heart, just a warning to, to all that some of the stuff that happens in, in the opera and that will be discussed is a little, is a little adult. So, um, but it's a, it's a phenomenal piece of music and it's a phenomenal, in my mind, narrative, plot, everything about this opera is so engaging, fascinating, enigmatic in many ways. And so I wanted to break it down for you on this on this podcast. We'll actually do it in two parts. It's about a two hour opera, but there's so much detail that I want to kind of split it into two episodes. But I think it's a great starter opera in some ways for especially people who have listened to a lot of instrumental music but but not so much opera because it's not particularly long and because it's it's very symphonic in many ways um and we'll hear some of that as we dive in so the a little bit about the the subject salome and the composer um strauss used a plot from the irish playwright playwright oscar wilde who wrote the play Salome. Uh, the play was originally written in French, but it was translated into German. And so the original setting by Strauss is the German version of Salome. But very importantly, he, he effectively kept the text of the play with some cuts, but that's something that many opera composers didn't do. They often got a librettist, even for a, a narrative that's already kind of set um, and they fit the libretto to the opera. But in this, in this opera, Strauss really was very, um, he honored the, the actual language of, of Oscar Wilde. And in doing so, he kept to a lot of the very, like we said, risque themes that at the time uh, for, you know, the very conservative Viennese audience, for example, were, you know, incredibly controversial. This this piece was not performed in Vienna until 1918. It came out in 1905. 
The composer Mahler tried to get it performed and it was censored. And so Strauss really took a step um, with this with this piece. It, you know, he, he staked his his reputation in many ways and also his his kind of compositional intent, his his ideas on what opera should be on this very controversial plot. Um, I have done some research, read as much as I can, and it's it seems to be unclear why Strauss chose to do this. I mean, he was certainly he he wanted to be something of a revolutionary. He was not a, a conservative symphonic writer. You know, he was a he was a proponent of the tone poem, which was viewed as the more modern of the two primary symphonic genres. But why he settled on Wilde's play and specifically Salome is is kind of an open question. But whatever the the ultimate reason, he wrote some incredible music. So I'm I am certainly glad that he did. So as I mentioned, he this this came out in 1905, uh, right around the turn of the century, and especially in Vienna, but around Austria, in France, in fact across Europe. There was a big kind of artistic, literary, philosophical movement going on, which is often referred to by the French name fin de siècle. Terrible French pronunciation, as always, I apologize. But this meant literally end of century. And it was a movement that was focused on kind of the the degradation of civilization. There was tons of technical advance going on and you know people were seeing the end of the 19th century as this moment of great expansion of civilization but they also a lot of more pessimistic artists philosophers writers saw this as real decadence and kind of the marker of the beginning of the end for for civilization so it starts with philosophers like pessimist philosophers like Schopenhauer well before the turn of the century and then the art and literature catches up with people like Oscar Wilde and Dostoevsky and Munch the painter and in in music this was Strauss this was Mahler in some ways this was Schoenberg composers primarily of the Austro-Germanic tradition in and around Vienna around the turn of the century. And Salome is absolutely one of the pillars of this artistic movement in music. It's it kind of in some ways pokes an ironic nose at the the decadent music of the the late 19th century, but also very actively brings a sort of modernist style, compositional technique, harmony, and subject, as we've already mentioned. So that's a little bit of background. I mean, there's plenty to read on this incredibly interesting and controversial opera. And so if you're interested, I'd encourage you to do that. But we'll dive into the music because this is primarily a musical podcast. And we should certainly start with the beginning, because the beginning is one of the most famous 
passages in the opera and dare I say in all of music, Alex Ross has called this opening figure in his book, The Rest is Noise. Alex Ross is the kind of preeminent music critic, I'd, I'd say, of our time and writes for The New Yorker. And he kind of sees this opening figure as opening the curtain on musical modernism. Incredibly influential opening little gesture here. The harmony is very important. We won't go so much into the details of that, but you can hear how it has this eerie, sinewy quality. So here's the opening bars of Salome by Richard Strauss. So devoted listeners of this podcast will be well prepared for this breakdown, especially if you've listened to the Wagner ring cycle breakdowns that we did many episodes ago, because Strauss was primarily influenced by one composer, and that composer was Richard Wagner. And in the ring cycle and in many of his operas, Wagner used a system of what was called light motifs, little musical signifiers that are used to signify a character or an emotion or a motivation. And Strauss picks up right where Wagner left off here with a light motif to open this opera. And this is, it's hard to ascribe exact names to these leitmotifs a little harder than for Wagner, but you hear this rising figure in the clarinet followed by this kind of little turn of the phrase, and that appears over and over and over when Salome is on stage, when she is kind of performing her more seductive, often subversive, uh, a little bit devious, a little bit slippery uh, acts. And so the, the feeling of that light motif, you get this kind of eerie, mysterious, slightly sinister feel, that is meant to signify exactly those type of kind of characteristics, emotions in the character. And so we're exposed to the first of, of many light motifs right off the bat. So we set we open the the opera on this character Naraboth who is the captain of Herod and Herodias's guard uh, and he's singing about how beautiful the night is so Salome is the daughter of Herodias these are characters from Greek mythology and Herodias has recently married Herod and King Herod and they haven't entered the scene yet, but uh, Naraboth is singing about the, the beautiful moon. The moon gets introduced as a figure very early in this opera and comes back over and over and over. And there's a page there who is kind of lusting over Naraboth, um, you know, saying that he looks very beautiful. And this is one of the first of many kind of somewhat homosexual allusions in this opera. Another thing that made it very controversial at the time, this was fresh off 
the trial of Oscar Wilde for for his accused at the time illegal homosexuality and so to include even allusions to to this at at, at this time was considered very risque i mean of course um we'd like to think that we've come some way since then uh but but this was kind of at, at the time a a step a, a subversive step possibly for for strauss in any case the scene opens with these these two characters kind of waxing poetic about the moon. And then Zalame enters the scene. She hasn't said anything yet, though. But Nara both sees her. And I want to play the first moment when she enters and Nara both sees her because he says, Salome looks beautiful tonight. Everyone's looking at each other in, in this opera and, and saying how beautiful they look. It's a constant theme. Um, and so here's the moment when, when Zalame enters and Naraboth sees her for the, for the first time. So things happen pretty quickly in this opera. As you can hear there, there's some very kind of romantic music just for a second. Stuff that feels very tonal, harmonious, and sweeping like we would have heard in the 19th century. And then immediately, if you're listening closely, you hear that Salome leitmotif played by the clarinet again when she enters. But Strauss, I think masterfully in this opera, fluctuates between the language of the 19th century sweeping romantic tonal music and the language of the 20th century signified by firstly that clarinet motif and all of the harmony that's associated with that and later some other similar sounding music you know very modernist palette in many ways very eerie and sinister like that character that we had in the opening so the page keeps pleading with Naraboth. The page has this this crush on Naraboth, it seems, and he keeps pleading with him to stop looking at Salome. But he also is saying that something bad might happen if he keeps looking. And then out of nowhere, we get interrupted by another character in this opera, another historical character, um, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist... Um, Yochanan is what his his name is in this this opera. He starts singing from a distance, and you'll hear in this clip that he's he's still off stage in some way, and it's kind of he's he's kind of blabbering, slight gibberish about the Messiah, the Savior who's going to come. He's meant to he's almost portrayed as this slightly ridiculous figure who's just completely in his own world but i want us to listen to the music of john the baptist it's very striking amidst this kind of modernist palette that strauss is using for the majority of this opening
So there is the first thing that John the Baptist sings. And I, I should mention, in case we haven't caught on already, many of these characters are characters that appear in in the New Testament or in, in Greek history, Herod, John the Baptist, Salome. Um, I don't want to give away the ending of, <laughs> of the opera, so I won't say in, in what guise they appear yet, but, but John the Baptist was this nomadic preacher who, who, you know, pops up all over biblical texts and, and things like that. So John the Baptist starts singing and he's, he's kind of, like I mentioned, blabbering about some Messiah and it's unclear what he's talking about. But you'll notice in the music, it's incredibly heroic, triumphant, and it settles on the key of C major, and you can hear it's very harmonious and tonal. And I think it's important that it settles on C major because much of the harmonic system of this opera Salome, which inspired many modernists to come, is about using what's called chromaticism, which is the deliberate avoidance of standard keys to give this kind of, you know, this feeling that you're not grounded by a musical key. That's a little bit of technical speak there, but in any case, you can hear the, the kind of tonal resonant character of, of John the Baptist's singing and the music associated with him there, very different from the tonal character and kind of atmosphere evoked by Salome's music. So the soldiers find him impossible to understand, and the scene cuts back to Naraboth, who's, uh, you know, the, the page is still pleading at pleading to Naraboth to not look at, at Salome, and she then enters the main scene and starts uh, singing herself. And she's asking why the Tetrarch, which is Herod, that's he was all, often referred to as the Tetrarch, the ruler for a quarter of a century, keeps looking at her. So everyone's looking at everyone. We have a little waltzy music. In this music, she, you know, her, the character that's given to, to Zalme is one that's a little... It's a little seductive. It's a little flighty. Um, it's almost like it feels almost uh, kind of difficult to pin down and very mysterious. Um, so there's a little waltz music to introduce her. And then we go back to some more John the Baptist singing off stage, same type of thing. And she hears him and she's very intrigued. She asks, she asks who he is about him, he continues to sing. And then I want to cut to the end of the scene where he's singing, still off stage, where Salome decides she wants to see John the Baptist. So clearly in this opera, seeing someone is a very powerful thing. You know, you can fall in love at first sight in this opera very clearly. Um, and so here's this, this passage where at the end of where John the Baptist is singing and when Zalame asks to see him. Mm -hmm. 
So an important moment in the plot, not particularly musically notable, although you hear towards the end of John the Baptist's soliloquy there, the, the music of Salome, that kind of creepy, flighty music, starts to enter again as she's about to sing. So then she looks down, and John the Baptist is, is buried. He's kind of stuck in this cage in a hole. He's been, like, captured and, and put in this kind of prison. She looks down there and sees how how dark it is in the hole. And Naraboth comes down. He's been on this kind of perch or, or wall. And he comes down, and she then looks at Naraboth, who's, who's been lusting after her this whole time, you know, saying how beautiful she looks. And she sings to Naraboth uh, that he will do this for her. She's very confident. She's very kind of seductive sly and she says uh you will let me see john the baptist and i want to play that moment as well So in a lot of these moments, you can hear Strauss uses this very fluttery, high, kind of jittery, excited music. It's, it's, it's incredibly, uh, it, it, I wouldn't say passionate per se, but excited in the most eerie and, like I said, kind of seductive way. It's a fascinating use of, of music to capture this very uh, enigmatic character of Salome. So Naraboth resists. He's trying to, to not, he doesn't want to bring out John the Baptist. And she keeps going. She tries to get him to look at her. You know, she's saying like, look me in the eyes kind of. And he eventually relents. And this of course is, is problematic. When someone looks at the, uh, another character in the eyes, they, it seems like they have some incredible grip over them. So he relents and he goes, okay, fine, I will, I will bring out John the Baptist. And this is a very important moment when, when he first emerges and it's a big orchestral interlude. And so I'm going to play a little more extended clip here for you now. The orchestral interlude, great symphonic writing by Strauss as John the Baptist gets pulled out of this cage hole and emerges onto the scene from kind of his off stage where he has been singing now to actually be on stage.
All right, so a lot of important stuff happens in that clip. I apologize. I don't have my normal keyboard with me at the moment because I'm traveling and I promise not to sing very much on this podcast, but we have a couple important leitmotifs that we hear in this orchestral interlude that introduced John the Baptist. The first is when it goes right at the beginning of this clip, you hear the brass play. That's one of the key leitmotifs for John the Baptist. And it's incredibly interesting because the notes of that leitmotif outline both C major and C minor and you know that the happy the sad the triumphant the painful version of the same key and so you're kind of left with this inherent in John the Baptist's leitmotif is this conflict of emotion or character or whatever whatever you see these these keys as representing it's a fascinating musical device and the other one that we hear that's also kind of associated with John the Baptist's possible heroism or something is which we heard towards the end of that clip and importantly at the end of that clip as well we get back to C major which I mentioned was the is the real key of John the Baptist it's the most earthly fundamental key it's all the white keys on the piano and so it's no coincidence that he sets this character, choosing to portray this character in this way, he sets it to C major. As a tiny little aside, I've always found this portrayal of John the Baptist in this way to be fascinating. You know, he's a he's a very enigmatic character himself in this opera, but he's portrayed as this, his music at least, is this incredibly triumphant, earthly, tonal music in complete contrast to... Zalame and and to the entire world of of Herod and Herodias and and so you know is is he the hero of this opera it's it's kind of unclear but in any case his his music we heard a little bit of it we're introduced to some of it there as he emerges from this this hole so he comes out and he's singing more about the messiah about Jesus you know on earth um and there's lots of heroic music and Salome doesn't know what he's talking about. She doesn't, you know, um, but she's very curious. And so then John the Baptist kind of transitions and this is the part of the opera. This is the part of his blabbering that actually is important for the characters in the opera because he also starts singing about the sins of Herodias, Salome's mother, who has committed incest according to him by by you know marrying Herod of course it's it, you know a, another very outdated element of both this uh this opera but of course referencing ancient histories the fact that it's it's all entirely on Herodias it seems the woman uh for committing this incest John the Baptist doesn't seem to be particularly concerned that Herod is doing the same thing but in any case, he is he is upset with Salome's mother about about this incest, says it's a sin, that she needs to repent. And I want to hear this moment where he's singing about how he says Herodias could be absolved if she kind of finds the Lord. It's an important moment. Uh, 
So you probably notice a, a notable shift in the music there and halfway through that clip when he starts talking about the kind of absolution that, that Herodias could find with, with the Lord or, you know, um, and the music switches there to B major. Very interestingly, it seems that B major is maybe the key of absolution or, uh, the holy key in this, this, uh, opera. Interestingly, for those of our listeners, expert listeners who know Strauss's, also Sprach Zarathustra, he stages the keys of C major and B major. Incredibly, in, in, in this piece, C major is the, the key of the earth and of earthliness, and B major is the key of enlightenment in this kind of Nietzschean world that goes on in this tone poem, also Sprach Zarathustra. So maybe there's something to this relationship between C and B in, in Strauss's tonal world. But in any case, that's another tangent there. But interesting to think about these key relations, especially in this piece where he's so intentional about about the tonality. Um, so we come back and just a little bit later, I want to listen to another short clip of music because Salome sings about how John the Baptist is terrifying. But she seems incredibly intrigued by the fact that he's terrifying. This is not someone who's scared by how terrifying she is. On the contrary, he is, excuse me. On the contrary, she's fascinated. So here's the moment when she says, you know, he's, he's terrifying. So there, it's a very brief clip, but we hear one more leitmotif that's very important to remember, and it's the one that you hear the clarinet player there again. That kind of slight upward motion and then a descending interval. That seems to be the leitmotif of kind of curiosity or fascination or maybe love, unclear. Um, but in any case, she's... She's terrified, but in a, in a fascinated way. And you can hear it in that incredibly kind of anticipatory electric music. So she says that his eyes are the most terrifying thing. In this passage, she's also talking a lot about the moon and how beautiful the moon is. That, that comes back over and over. And he doesn't like her looking at him. He keeps rebuffing her, you know, stop looking at me. And she's fascinated by his voice now, um, and he keeps yelling at her, you need to repent, you know, find the Lord. Um, and one more passage from this, this scene where she says that she's, she's in love with his, his body. That's what she starts by saying. And this goes on for a while, but she's, she's fascinated by his body. She's looking at his body and she's, she's fascinated. You can see how this kind of narrative, this plot line, all of this, you know, 
very kind of risque for turn of the century Viennese audiences. We haven't even gotten to the the blockbuster risque parts yet, but but here's this passage where she says she's in love with his body. hear that kind of love fascination motif towards the end of that clip first this highly romantic music and then still in b major this kind of fascination uh love whatever we might call it it that that motif starts morphing almost into a little bit of a waltz so we get a long section now in b major and so she wants to first touch his body and then she changes her mind and she's repulsed by his body suddenly. She says it's disgusting and, and now she likes his hair. And she starts singing about how he, she likes his hair, describes it in detail. And then something switches and she hates his hair. It's disgusting. And then she changes to the mouth and she sings this long romantic aria about his mouth. It shifts then to E major and it's this very passionate music. Um, there's there's a pattern in this opera. I think the symbolism is is beyond me, but of things happening in threes like this. And so you know she wants his body, then she wants his hair. Now she wants his mouth. Um, and at the end of this passage, she finally arrives at the mouth. She's describing it. It's like a uses all this very flowery language. It's like a pomegranate that's just been cut or something. But she asks to kiss his mouth. And I want us to hear this moment because she asks to kiss his mouth and a lot happens in the course of about a minute and 15 seconds in the opera. She asks, he says no, she says she will. And then amidst all of this chaos, Naraboth, the character that we've been introduced to at the beginning, ends up killing himself, seemingly because he's so in love with Salome after this glance that now her going to kiss John the Baptist, you know, drives him to this point. So um, I want to hear this whole section of music. It's a very long and dramatic section of music, but it's one of the more important moments in the opera. So here's that, that passage. Oh, 
So the incredibly quick changes of character are very characteristic of this opera. I mean, you hear the John the Baptist character is singing Get Away From Me, and then she's suddenly swept up in this moment of extreme passion, and she wants to kiss him, and then this, a second later, Narboth, you know, stabs himself. Very dramatic, passionate, undulating scene. So... John the Baptist then continues to say that only one person can save her. There's this long section of, of him kind of preaching almost in a way, and we hear a lot of John the Baptist's motifs over the course of that, this, this next passage. It's, it's great music. All the music with John the Baptist is some of my favorite in this opera. It's that very tonal C major writing that I think Strauss is amazing. I mean, the other stuff is also incredible, but, but that's some of my favorite. And she asks to kiss his mouth again, and this time he curses her. You know, he says, you are, you are cursed for doing this. And another important moment in, in the plot, obviously, whenever a character curses another character in any movie or, or opera or whatever, it's, it seems to be an important one. But this is certainly a dramatic moment in the music as well, so let's listen to that passage. So for those keen ears that are, are listening very closely to this passage, we start by hearing the John the Baptist motif, the but slightly transformed, as I mentioned earlier, it's now set to this minor music. It can fit into both major or minor. So we hear that at the beginning, and then at the end we also hear that kind of love motif, again, transformed now into minor, and so something bad has happened here. So then we get a long orchestral interlude again. There's a very famous contrabassoon solo in this passage. It's, it's a good one to go listen to if, if you'd like. It's about 35 minutes into the opera. And then Herod enters. It changes scene, and Herod enters the scene. And of course, the first thing he mentions is that the moon looks strange. To him, it looks strange to... Other characters, it looks beautiful, but the moon is this kind of constant that's over this scene. And he slips on some blood. He's walking around and he slips on blood. It's the blood of Naraboth, who's just died, and he says this is a bad omen. And so he he hears what happened, uh, you know, with, with Naraboth, his soldiers tell him. And then Herod starts hallucinating, kind of. He's, he's a little bit... he's. He's a little bit delusional or hallucinatory in this scene and to come, and we start seeing that right right from the outset. And so here's one passage where he says he it's cold and there's a wind blowing through and everyone else says, 
No, it's not. It's not cold. There's no wind. But I want to play you this this passage where Herod thinks it's very cold, windy, and he's kind of starting to to lose his mind if he hasn't already. Es ist kalt hier. Es weht ein Wind. Weht nicht ein Wind. Es weht kein Wind. Ich sage euch, es weht ein Wind. Und in der Luft höre ich etwas wie das Rauschen von Mächten fliegen. So there you actually hear a, a wind machine being used and very kind of eerie, cold music, great composition, almost cinematic composition by Strauss there. And then right at the end, if you're listening closely, again, there's, there's a John the Baptist motif that we hear briefly. Often light motifs are used in this way. No one's really talking about John the Baptist, but it suggests that, you know, he has some role to play in the coming scene. Um, so we hear that, that motif there. And then Herod, somewhat creepily, he asks Salome to come drink wine with him just a little bit later. And so this starts another one of these three passages where Herod, Herod now is the one asking Salome to do a variety of things. And I want to hear a little bit of the music that starts this passage when Herod asks Salome to drink wine with him. I think that this is an important moment in the plot because it, or in, excuse me, in the music, because it shows kind of Strauss's, one of Strauss's hallmarks, which is his kind of blending of an adherence to musical traditions and wildly revolutionary modernist language. Because he writes another kind of waltz drinking song here for, for this invitation from Herod to come drink with Salome. But it's a very kind of perverted, off-color waltz. Of course, this is, Herod is Salome's stepfather. You know, Salome is the daughter of Herodias and Herod II, uh, who is not, not to be confused with the Herod in this different person, but uh, she is, Herodias is now married to King Herod the Tetrarch, and this is Salome's stepfather, who's kind of creepily asking her to come drink wine with him. So she says she's not thirsty. Then he offers her some fruit, and she says she's not hungry. He asks her to sit next to him, and she says she's not tired. So here's another instance of these kind of threes in the, the opera. Then John the Baptist sings again, and Herodias... Uh, Herod's kind of like, what is that? Uh, and Herodias accuses Herod of being scared of John the Baptist. She, you know, he's been slandering her with this, this stuff that he's been saying, and she's accusing Herod of being scared of him. Presumably he should have 
had him put to death or something for this and he hasn't yet. Um, and then there's this long scene that we can talk about briefly where there are five Jews um, that are on the scene and they ask um, John the Baptist to be handed over to them. And this scene is, is a really tough one in the opera, uh, as it are many scenes from Austro-German repertoire of this time and earlier. You know, of course, Richard Wagner was a noted and kind of blazing anti-Semite in many ways. Um, and his music and certainly his views have kind of come under hundreds of years of, or you know, 160 years of criticism for this and and Strauss is also a very problematic figure in anti-semitic kind of movements he's a little harder to pin down than than Wagner he if you want to read about his kind of relationship with the Nazi party it was a very kind of confusing and fractured one but he was not an ardent protester of the Nazis he kind of went along despite uh, some some words kind of against some of the things that they did and kind of repeated declarations that he didn't believe in their philosophies, but he was not an active, uh, you know, he, he did things for them because he, he kind of seemed to think it was his duty as a German or something. And so he's a very problematic figure. And this scene is incredibly problematic, so much so that I am not going to use any of the music from it. I think it's not the greatest music anyways, but it's a scene where in my mind, and it's open to interpretation, but it seems that as has a history in in the Germanic operatic tradition, especially in, in a few of Wagner's operas with some key characters, it seems like he's kind of caricaturing what what some Germans at the time viewed as kind of the Jewish style of speaking. And... I think in many ways this scene can be viewed as anti-Semitic or very offensive uh, at the very least. Um, it's, it's, I guess, to a certain extent open to the listener's interpretation. But in any case, I think it's, it's kind of meaningless to the overall plot. And it's also not the greatest music. And so we won't, we won't deal with it on this podcast. But it's, it's, I think, something to look into. Strauss is very problematic and kind of cloudy history with um with these issues so i think it's important to mention that too on a podcast because you know the context is important and also it's, it's important to note despite this being a great opera and a lot of great music just like with wagner many problems often around the ideology of the composers and in some ways that often blends that you know sometimes that that doesn't seem to to appear kind of overtly in the music and other times like this, it, it definitely does. So in any case, there's this big long scene that we're going to skip. And then John the Baptist starts singing about Herodias again and slandering her in a way, you know, and she says to make him be quiet. She tells Herod again, make him be quiet. Salome is kind of just off to the side for, for all of this. And I want to just close this first part where Herodias finally says, make him be quiet. And she makes this kind of a firm declaration. And this sets off kind of the second half of events 
in this this opera. So it's a good delineation point of kind of two parts of this opera. So let's hear the the closing uh, bars of this what we might call the first part of this opera, Salome. So here's here's the end of of this first part. So a true Straussian, Wagnerian soprano moment right there, just as loud as you can sing, say, make him stop. Um, and you hear a kind of frenzied version of the John the Baptist motif there. So anyways, that's the, the end of, of what we'll call part one of this opera, although it's through composed and it happens continuously. It's, it's really in one act, but much more exciting, risque, controversial plot to come in the second half of this and probably the most famous music from this opera as well in, in the second half. So I'll bring that breakdown to you in in a few days. But in the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this first half. Maybe we'll go and, and listen to some of the opera, watch it yourself. It's a fascinating work, one worth reading a little bit about, researching certainly Strauss's motivations for writing this piece, Wilde's uh, kind of plot that he came up with for this this play Salome and all of the very subversive themes that are included in it and and also you know Strauss's fraught and problematic history with with anti-semitism which which crops up towards the end of this this first part but some great music nonetheless that we've heard over the course of this this episode and much more to come so We'll be back with part two of this breakdown of Salome, and thanks as always for joining us. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really helps us get out to as many people as possible. So see you next time, and thanks so much for joining me.